0: You turn to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, chapter 25, we're, we're going to begin this morning in verse 10. You know, last week we talked about the purpose of the tabernacle, of this tent that God had his people build. He gave them the instructions for it. That's especially what we're going through now. Uh, and, and he gave it to them. I mean, it's a tent, he gave it to them to take with them wherever they went so that as they went through the wilderness, and they stopped, they would, and there was a particular method uh, to all of it, they would set up the tent, and it would be uh, at the very center of this congregation, uh, and they'd be formed on the north side and on the south side, the east and the west, all around uh, looking at, toward this this tent. And, and this tent had a very particular purpose. That's what we discussed last week, and it was very simple, yet very incredible. If you think about it, I think uh, some of these things, uh, especially this, we get, we, we get used to talking about it, but we, we fail to see how truly incredible this is, because the purpose was that it was God coming to live with His people, God coming to dwell with his people. And, and truly, when we think about who God really is, you know, this, is this is amazing. Uh, it's unthinkable. There are many other religions, uh, and uh, there are many others who have a picture of what they believe to be God, and, and you never see anything like this. Yet, this is the true God coming to live with his people. Uh, now, many people do think of God as being, he is creator. Therefore, he is very distant from us. He, he's done his work, but he is out there, especially in the Old Testament. I think we often may have that view, yet this corrects our, our, our view, our understanding, uh, because he wanted to be with his people. He wanted to dwell with his people. And so as they traveled through the wilderness, the Lord was near to them. They were not alone. And so immediately after He made them His covenant people, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, uh, chapter 24 of Exodus, uh, the, the, the covenant, then He taught them how to worship Him. That was the first thing. Uh, you are my people, you need to know how to worship me. And so that's what we're going through as we look at, at this, and as we saw last week, He made this statement uh, through Moses, he said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so we've got to remember that that's what this is all about. It's God dwelling together in nearness with his people. So what does that really mean to us, though? Uh, what does it really mean to have God present in your life, to have the near presence of God, how, how, how does that change the way you live your life knowing that God is present? I mean, all of us we, we have disappointments, we have suffering of different types, we have adversity in our lives. Well, what's the difference in going through all of those and, and living your life, facing those things? What's the difference between facing those things in your own way, under your own power, and on the other hand, while living your life submitted to the Lord, and therefore knowing and experiencing His close presence, His nearness, moment by moment and day by day. Well, That's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. As we consider uh, the tabernacle and the objects that the tabernacle contained, we're going to be asking, what do these tell us about the implications of having... God dwelling in our lives of having having the presence of the Lord uh, with us. Uh, now there's a lot we won't there's a lot there so there's a lot we won't cover but we do want to look at the tabernacle and, and see and understand this. Now I'll just mention uh, in fact I'd like to repeat something that I a, a point that I made last week. I, I mentioned that right here as we look at the tabernacle this is the place in the Bible that many people, if if you're reading from, decide you're going to read from cover to cover in the Bible. You begin in Genesis. It's going pretty well. You go through Exodus. There's a lot to engage you uh, and to to understand, but then a lot of people get to this point, and they get bogged down and and often stop reading at this point. And therefore, we've got to see this in the right way. And I think it will help us to to understand, as I said last week, that God intended this to be visual. Uh, What's He doing here, especially in in just these next couple of chapters 25 through uh, 29 or so? He's giving the blueprints, it's a set of blueprints for what the tabernacle is going to be like and what's going to be in it. And therefore, we've got a lot of exact dimensions, a lot of repetition, a lot of detail. Uh, But remember, the purpose is that uh, there will be a visual depiction of certain spiritual realities. Uh, So again, uh, we're given physical objects here to represent spiritual realities. Uh, Sometimes a picture really is worth a thousand words, Uh, but our challenge is that we don't have the tabernacle before us. Uh, I don't know, there may be some here who have seen a replica of the tabernacle. I, I have in a couple of instances, very helpful uh, because you can set your eyes on it, and then you can talk about what each piece means. What I'm going to ask us to do this morning is try to have a picture of it. I, you know, we're going to read through just part of this. We're not going to read through all the details. Uh, one thing I'd like for you to remember as we do read through is that a cubit is 18 inches. So if it says two cubits, that's 36 inches. How many feet is that? three feet, right? So try to, try to get that picture in your mind. I'm going to try to help us uh, so that we can visualize uh, what this looked like. But don't forget that all the way through, this is a pattern of a reality. And so we want to look at the pattern and see the pattern, but also match it to the reality uh, that we, we have. So I, I do want to read enough of the text here to give just a taste of the detail and the precision with which this is is given uh, i don 't know how many have actually read through, and some of us are those types that will read you know every word and kind of kind of think through uh, you know what are all the dimensions. Others will just uh, skim over the whole whole thing there's uh, positive uh, side to both, but I do want us to be able to visualize this so so i 'm going to read the the section on the Ark of the Covenant and and its cover uh, i 'm going to read that in its entirety, and then after that. So, through 25 and 26 chapters, uh, I'm going to kind of skip through, so I'll just uh, tell you where to look, but try to form this picture uh, in your mind. So, beginning in Exodus 25, verse 10, this is God's Word. The Lord said, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them, The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. On one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, that's about three, that's what, three feet, a cubit its breadth, It's a foot and a half, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. If you'd skip down to verse 30, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold, The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out on one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. You'll skip down to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Then the the tabernacle, chapter 26. I'll describe this later, so I'm just going to read a few words. Moreover, You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. You'll skip down to verse 31. And you shall make a veil. This is inside of the tabernacle three-quarters of the way back. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall be separate for you, the holy place, from the the most holy." I'm sorry, the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. Okay, we're going to stop there. There are elements that we will uh, cover next week as well as we look at the priesthood. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we thank You that You are a God who has chosen to reveal Yourself to us, reveal uh, the way that You work uh, to us, Your character, to us, Your (coughs) desires, uh, to us as well. Um, And we thank You that You have chosen to come into relationship with a people. And so we pray, Lord, as we look at this, uh, the tabernacle, uh, we, we recognize that this can be confuse, confusing, uh, this can be difficult to, to picture, to understand the connections. So we pray for your help, Lord, uh, that you would help us to see uh, with eyes that are able to picture this, but especially to see with spiritual eyes. That are able to see and to understand what this is all about and how it applies to us as well. Father, we uh, look for your help this morning. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many of us here, I think, know the story of Naomi that we find in the book of Book of Ruth. Uh, it's a, it's what I believe to be an absolutely wonderful story, but it has a very difficult beginning to it. Uh, if, if you know the story, if you remember, Naomi and her husband choose to, to leave the land of Israel, the promised land, in order to look for food. Uh, there's, there's famine in the land, and so they go searching, and searching for food, and that seems reasonable, yet... The place where they go to is is Moab. Uh, It is a a people who have been enemies with God's people. And and so they're they're going to live there amongst those who worship foreign gods. Uh, What it seems, and there are different views on this, but what it seems is that they they took things into their own hands, not trusting in the Lord. Now, when they went there to Moab, they did find food. uh, And... They've got two sons, Naomi and and her husband do, two sons, and they both find wives, uh, Moabite wives. And so it seems that things are going pretty well, but then affliction and loss hits, and Naomi's husband dies. And then just after that, her two sons die. And so after all of this, here she is in a foreign land, Uh, and after one of the wives uh, of her sons returns home, all that she's left with, all that she has remaining uh, to to her her own claim was this Moabite widow named Ruth. And in that day, if you were a widow, especially, and you were a, a, a woman and... Uh, certainly for those who were in Israel, uh, you were a foreigner and, and a Moabite. That, that was not a good combination. And you didn't have hope for a future. And so that meant for Naomi as well. There didn't seem to be any hope. But then there was one decision that Naomi made upon which the entire story turns. And it was, that, I mean, it was very simple. She decided to return to the land. She had heard that there was food to be had in the land, she, so she decided to return to, particularly to Bethlehem. I don't know if you know what, what that, uh, the, the name means in Hebrew, but it's Beit Lechem, which means house of bread. And so she went from where she was uh, to Bethlehem, to the house of bread. Now, Naomi went, and she was bitter. Uh, she was desolate. She seemed to be without hope. All that she had was this daughter-in-law, Ruth, a, a foreigner, but when she returned to the land, what we see is that God was there. God was there, present with His people. And and, and you just see, it's it's almost like she does nothing, she's still in this state of misery, and yet she experiences blessing after blessing after blessing through the, through the most unexpected of places. And it was through, uh, through Ruth the Moabitess. And so there in the land was a, what was called a kinsman redeemer. This was something that God had provided for. He had set up in His law uh, that a, a relative would come alongside and help those who had been with. It was unlike anything that you would find anywhere else, uh, yet uh, she had a kinsman redeemer in the land, this man Boaz. Uh, and Boaz took it upon himself because he was faithful to the Lord he took it upon Himself to provide for Naomi and to provide for Ruth and even married Ruth. And all of a sudden, uh, she goes from a place of a complete lack of, of provision to true blessing. And, and here's what's said about Naomi uh, at, at this point. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more precious than seven sons, has given birth to a child What we're to see in this statement and in in, in this story is this stark contrast. It's a contrast between Naomi's life outside of God's presence and then her life under the rule of God and amongst His people. You know, one is this place of of isolation and and a life that's full of, of idols Uh, and that leads astray. The other is a life of blessing. In fact, all the way through it, you can see God's hidden hand providing, uh, providing through His His ruling, providing through His people. And so the result of all this is blessing and wholeness and and provision and a restoration of, of life itself. You know, the first... Was and is often attractive, but it only consists of temporary provision and temporary pleasures. The second are blessings that continue on and on, even though it's often more difficult to see that and to follow that way. Now, isn't that a statement? to ask you of what we can find in our own lives. Now, I'll ask you, it doesn't matter if you're young or or older, Uh, all of us, I think, can probably see this in our own lives, that uh, in your life, you can see that there are two different paths that you can take. Often, it might be tomorrow, you wake up in the morning and something happens, you got two different ways of going about it, uh, two different paths. One of those is following your own way. Uh, it's, it's the path you might be drawn to seeking after your own provision, your own pleasures perhaps, uh, looking at provision in your own way, and finding your worship, if we're honest about it, elsewhere. On the other hand, the other path is a path of obedience to the Lord, uh, receiving from Him uh, a guiding truth, a way to follow, uh, and it's putting Him, for us we would say, it's putting the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord over our lives and over our hearts. And our worship, therefore, is upon Him. It's given over to Him. So the first, if you're honest with yourself, is apart from the Lord and from His way, and the other, is allowing Him to take control. And so you follow His ways and cling to His people. Two very different paths. And again, it doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, what your state of life is, this is what we have facing us. As we look at the tabernacle, it provides us with a picture of the second path. The question being, what does it mean to really worship the Lord? To be dedicated to Him, and we get this wonderful picture of this with with Naomi as she returned to the land. Now, she may have been bitter uh, in in heart. She may have not liked her her lot, her state uh, of uh, of life, her circumstances. But she returned to the Lord, and she returned to His people. And it was only there that she experienced her kinsman redeemer. So that it w- it was said. To her, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. You know, as we look at the elements of the tabernacle, we're reminded that it is by putting ourselves in that place, putting ourselves, in a sense, in the land, uh, trusting in him, following him, uh, being amongst his people, using the means that he's provided for grace that we begin to. Truly experience our Redeemer, the one who truly restores life to us, both here and now and eternally. In that place, there is wholeness. In that place, there is flourishing. I'm not saying that it's a place in which everything goes the way we might uh, desire it, that it's easy, that there's no suffering. No but there is wholeness and there is flourishing. And that only occurs truly when we put ourselves into God's presence. And so we're going to, this morning, use the the tabernacle just to to help us to have a glimpse of that blessing that comes when we put ourselves into God's presence. And so the first thing that I'd like, like us to see is that there, in God's presence, we find fellowship with God. Did you know that you have been created for God's glory, for God's glory. This is uh, out of Isaiah 43, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Really, that's what this is about as we look at, look at the tabernacle. This is about getting back, uh, back to a place uh, where where God has intended for us to be, a place in which we know and we understand and we experience that which we were made for, fellowship with God, uh, an experience of His glory. And that's what we see with the tabernacle. And, and you can you can see that, I believe, in, in the plans uh, for building it that were given. Uh, you, know, you can look at chapter 26. Uh, the heading there uh, says... The tabernacle and and instructions are given there for building the tabernacle. Now now I know when you when you look at that and you read through those uh, those plans for the tabernacle that you you may have a difficult time seeing the glory of God and experiencing the glory of God. Just reading through that description, it may not seem like a likely place to find the glory of God. But remember, these are just blueprints for the place in which God will dwell together with His people. Uh, it's just a description, blueprints. It doesn't come to life until the Lord Himself brings it to life. Now, throughout this structure, uh, the tabernacle is intended to, to teach about what it means to know God. And you can kind of think of it, uh, about it this way, that the tabernacle served as like a portal a glimpse into heaven, into the place where God resides, but but it's brought down to earth so that you get this glimpse of heaven on earth now, and it provides access to God. It provides the blessings of God right here, where we are, where there's brokenness, uh, where there's sin, where there's an absence of God. And so we can see that in in these words, you look back in chapter twenty-five. These words about the covenant. Uh, in, in chapter twenty-five, verse twenty-two, the Lord says, "There I will meet with you." He's talking about there in within the, uh, within the tabernacle where the ark is going to be. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, we'll talk about this in a moment, uh, that are on the, the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The key words there, there I will meet with you. This whole tabernacle was often called the tent of meeting. Uh, and these words are given to Moses, particularly, uh, the Lord is saying that you, Moses, it 's there that I will meet with you, but what about the people? Are they able to meet with the Lord? I think to see this, we need to look at the, the tabernacle 's layout. Uh, now, the tabernacle itself was it was, like I said, a tent. It was about the size of, I don't know if you've looked at the, the picnic pavilion out here, it's just got the, the base kind of laid out, uh, the footers have been, there's concrete uh, that's been poured for the footers, but you can get a, you can see the, the size of it. So if you look at that, that's about the size of the tabernacle, if you were to stretch it a little bit, so that it's narrower than that, but a little bit longer. So it was about 45 feet long in, in length, and then 15 feet wide, that's the tabernacle. It's not real wide. It's kind of like this center section of, of seats that, that we have uh, here. Um, and so uh, that, uh, that's the tabernacle. It was, it was exquisitely made. We can see it in the plans, but it wasn't all that big. And it had a fence, sort of a fence Uh, around it that formed an area about the size of this whole church. It was about 150 feet by 75 feet. And that left you with, if you were to walk into that that area, it left you with a large courtyard before you got to the tent, to the tabernacle. And so based on that layout, just pay attention to these different sections of the tabernacle, each of them representing a different uh, nearness to the Lord. So, first, there was the whole world outside of the uh, outside of the courtyard, outside of the whole thing. This was representative of all those who are farthest from God, who have no true knowledge of of the Lord, no opportunity for fellowship with him and Then, as you entered into the courtyard, this large area before you went into the tabernacle, uh, this was for god 's people. Uh, They weren't able, most of them, to go into the tabernacle. So the closest they could get was in this courtyard. They had the privilege of being near to God, yet they themselves could never go in and meet with God. There was this thick curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle which stood in the way. Now now through that curtain, the priests could enter, but only when they had a task to perform, uh, but the priests could enter, so they could go into the tabernacle uh, and be nearer to God. Yet, within the tabernacle, there was another curtain. We read about it earlier, uh, and that 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 was called the veil, and it kept them from going into the most holy place. So they could enter the holy place, which was the majority of the tabernacle, but not into the most holy place. If they went into the, the holy place, they'd have the, the, the candle... Uh, the, the candle lamp on the left side, the table that was for the bread on the right side, there was actually another table that we haven't read about yet uh, for incense that was there, but that's as far as they could go. They're nearer to God, but they're not directly in the place that was God's place. Moses could go beyond. Moses was able to go into the most holy place, uh, and to experience this nearness with God. Later on, uh, the, the the chief priest would be able to enter. And you know, later on, it's just once a year he would be able to enter. But But right here, Moses could go in, he could speak with God, and there he would experience the glorious presence of the Lord. And it was... It had such an effect on him because he was right there in the presence of God with all of his glory. It had such an effect on, on him that when he'd come out that Moses' face would literally shine light to the point at which he had to put a veil over it uh, so that it wouldn't blind the people that he was in front of. All of this because he had met with God. Now, we know he, he didn't truly see God face to face God is spirit, but he was right there in the presence of God, spiritually communing with him. And this was the effect. He was able to to know and to discern the beauty of God and the glory of God. Just think for a moment what effect that would have on Moses' faith, on Moses' ability daily to walk and to do the tasks that were in front of him, to have known the Lord, to have been in this close presence of the Lord. Now, I'd just like for you to notice how, by the design of the, the, the tabernacle, that each of these areas get progressively nearer to God. And yet, access was limited for many. And this was done because, remember, it's it's bringing heaven to earth. Who's up on the earth? People like you and me. Sinful people that can't be in the presence of God, uh, unable, Uh, and so this was to show the absolute holiness of God, and he can't be approached by sinful man. And so even for those who belong to the Lord, access was outside of themselves. They needed Moses to be the one who would come and speak with them about what the Lord had spoken. They were unable to directly experience God as Moses experienced God. Now the New Testament makes it clear that that all changes with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We've got a different reality today. You know, as, as Jesus hung on the cross and as He breathed His last, access into the most holy place was opened up. We read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And what that represented was direct access into the Holy of Holies. It's, it's saying that by Jesus' death, by His sacrifice, believers today have access to God. We are able to commune with God. Again, not to see Him with our eyes, face to face, yet to commune spiritually together with God so that we are able to experience His glory. And in the same way, that Moses was impacted, was affected uh, as he lived his life by having been in the presence of God in the same way we are able to do that ourselves, particularly when we gather in worship. We're able to commune with God. We're able to fellowship with God. We're able to experience His glory. Uh, He is spiritual. We can't see Him. Yet, as we put ourselves into His presence... Remember, that's a requirement, to be in the presence of the Lord as we worship Him, as we submit our hearts to Him, as we make use of the means that He has provided for us to to know Him and to commune with Him, we can spiritually know and experience the God of, of glory. You know, Paul said this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts He was speaking to believers, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You know, really, this is what we were made for. To fellowship with God, to know His glory, to to be in a place of wholeness and of peace together with God. Yet you think about it at the same time, what do we do? We constantly seek other means of filling that void inside of ourselves. You can think for yourself, what are the primary ways that I go to again and again to try to fill that void that I've got deep down inside? You were created for God's glory. But absent that glory, you're going to find something else to fill that space. So think for yourself about the ways that you try to fill it, and then remember what it means to put yourself into the land, into the presence of God, to do what Naomi did, rather than following our own way, but to look to His way and to seek after the Lord's presence continually. So first of all, we find fellowship in God's presence. Secondly, we find provision in God's presence. When we place ourselves under God's rule and amongst His people and His way of of doing things, following His instructions that He's given us, we find abundant provision from God. Now, I'm just going to touch on this briefly, but we we see this depicted here through, especially through the bread of the presence, through the lampstand, uh, these two objects, elements that the Lord had instructed uh, how to build them, given the perfect uh, specifications and said here 's where you are to place them inside of the tabernacle, and then they were to be cared for by the priests now first of all the it was on on the right hand side as you, as you walk in uh, it was not a large table, uh, what was it three feet by maybe a foot and a half uh, there are 12, we find in Leviticus, 12 loaves of bread that would be kept on this table. And those those loaves would always be there. And, and every Sabbath, the priest would go in and, and remove the old loaves, and those were for eating by the priest. And then he'd place new, fresh bread there. Now, there are some different interpretations on exactly what this means and what it points to but its, its most basic meaning must have been uh, to show the Lord's ongoing provision through His presence amongst His people. You know, in, uh, where it describes this in, in chapter 25, right at the end of that section, uh, it's verse 30. It says, and, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The the bread of the presence, there is provision for those who are together with the Lord. Bread represents what? Uh, A a, a filling up, an ongoing provision of our most basic needs. Uh, So, the bread of the presence. Secondly, the the lampstand, as soon as you went in, it would be on the left-hand side. It stood uh, as, again, provision for God's people, a different sort of provision. Now, this was a candelabra kind of thing with three lamps on one side and three on the other, uh, and then one in the middle, so you'd see seven uh, across there. And it was to be burning perpetually whenever the the tabernacle was in place, constantly burning. And, you know, I think the meaning of this uh, lampstand is not difficult for us to discern. We see it Uh, the light of God throughout Scripture. The Lord opens our eyes to be able to see and to understand who He is, and to be able to understand the things of God that we find in Scripture. Scripture has great depth. We don't understand all things, but over time He opens our eyes to see things, to put it all together, uh, to truly see Him, and to see ourselves, to see uh, that relationship. The Lord opens our, our eyes. He shows us the way ahead. He gives us the light, the light of life. You know, uh, Jesus made clear what both of these were pointing to, right? What did Jesus, especially in, in John's gospel, what did he call himself uh, in the I am statements? One of those was Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Was he only talking about uh, physical hunger, physical thirst? No. He was talking about what each one of us desperately needs, that filling that we need within, that he is there to fill us and to provide. Uh, Again, later on, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What are we doing this morning? Uh, we're going to be taking the bread and recalling uh, who Jesus is for us. Uh, what also did Jesus say about himself? Uh, this is John in John 8, verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And isn't that what we all need? Uh, if, you, if you go outside... At nighttime, you begin stumbling around. Uh, you know, I've even come into the sanctuary a number of times when it was dark, uh, and back there, there's a certain chair that always gets me when I try to round the corner uh, because I can't see. But when we have the light of life, we've got that path that's, that's there in front of us. He shows us the way at all times. This is God's provision. Think about Naomi coming into the land and experiencing God's provision uh, the House of, of Bread, Bethlehem, uh, and she experienced that even though she didn 't she didn 't know it at first, but it all came just from coming into the land uh, so uh, first fellowship with God, secondly, provision of god in in god 's presence, and finally deliverance, deliverance we find deliverance in god 's presence uh, the tabernacle brings this out visually uh, in a number of ways. It brings out what the condition of people really is like in reality. What, what, what are our, what's our condition like? Now, this is the thing that we as people so often or most fail to recognize. In fact, uh, for the unbeliever, Scripture says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In other words, they can't can't see this. But that truth that's suppressed is this, that we stand before a holy God and that we are sinful so that we are denied access based upon our own merits. Yet the tabernacle gives this depiction of what happens when we place ourselves into the presence of God. And there is this beautiful way of access that is opened up for us. Deliverance is ours. You know, one way that this is shown to us uh, is in the most holy place. The only thing that was in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of it, this exquisite cover. Uh, and so, the Ark, it was a piece of, uh, kind of like a chest, about, about that size, four feet Maybe uh, about that that high, about that wide, uh, not a not a big box. And then on top of it was this uh, this cover, uh, a very particular cover that had great meaning. Uh, now the cover was called the Mercy Seat. Uh, one more thing about about the, uh, the the box, about the the ark. You notice when we read, it said that there were poles for carrying it, but it was different than all the other objects which had poles for carrying them. These poles were permanent. They were to never be taken off. They were to remain on the ark. The reason for that is that no one could touch the ark because of the holiness of God. Now, we see in I believe 2 Samuel a place where a person did touch the ark. They just reached out to steady it, and they were struck Dead they they knew that they were not to do that, but again, this is the emphasis the holiness of uh, of God now this this covering that was over it we, we read about the details it had two winged cherubim uh, on top of it. Uh, they were carved so that they were they were pure gold, and they were looking toward one another with their faces down, their wings outstretched uh, and What we see witnessed throughout the Old Testament is that the cherubim represented two things. Number one, they represented the throne of God. Because of God's holiness, they were unable to look up at God, so they looked down at the mercy seat. Uh, But they represented the throne of God. He is enthroned above them. Uh, now that leads to the second thing that they represent, and that is that they stood as guards. You know, the Lord is holy. And therefore the cherubim were there to deny access to anything or anyone who is unholy. You can think about, it's maybe a, a a crude uh, illustration, but think about the, the President of the United States. What does he have around him, usually? Uh, there are Not bodyguards, but they're secret service men. Uh, What do they do? They're there to deny access to anyone uh, who doesn't have the right credentials, uh, who may be, uh, it wouldn't be unholy, but who may be dangerous in any way to uh, that that one person. Uh, So again, uh, they're there to deny anyone that doesn't have access. That's the chairman. We see... Uh, the way the, these cherubim are put into place to guard the way to the tree of life. Think about the Garden of Eden, uh, chapter 3, right? At the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, the fall has happened, and the Lord places uh, to guard the garden a, a flaming swords, and the cherubim are there to deny access to anyone. You know, we can see both these purposes in uh, the the psalm, that we had for our call to worship this morning. The first verse said, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits, the Lord sits, enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And so this is the place where Moses would meet together with the Lord to experience His glory and to hear from Him. It was the tent of meeting. It was the most holy place where the the, the mercy seat was. But think about how God is depicted there. He's invisible, He's enthroned above the cherubim, and under His feet were, or was, the the ark. What did the ark contain? Do you remember we we read that earlier? There are a couple of other things that are going to be added later to the ark, but here's the the central uh, object that was in the ark, uh, chapter 25, verse... 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I have given you. It was the law of God, the Ten Commandments. This was the reason that the cherubim were there guarding and denying access to God. What does the law do? It exposes sin. That's the most basic function of the law. So the cherubim must stand guard because the Lord in all of his wrath must destroy sin and the sinner. That's a pretty dim picture, isn't it? For the sinner. That here God is enthroned above and below the law. Where is there hope in that picture? The mercy seat. The name itself. This is the reason we use in English the word mercy seat. It means to to wipe away or to cover over or to atone for that's the name of this uh, this lid that went on top of the ark. And this is good news. You know, for Moses and later for the high priest, the instruction was that when they were to go into the holy place, uh, they would sprinkle blood, the blood of the sacrifice. They would sprinkle it on to the top of the, the, the mercy seat. Uh, the blood of the sacrifice provided the cover for the sinner the sinner who has placed himself or herself into the presence of god why so that the wrath of god would be satisfied and what do we know that of course the rat, the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin So all of this was pointing to one who could atone for sin, one who was a sacrifice, one who did provide the blood that was needed, one who is able to atone. You know, earlier we read out of 1 Peter 2.25 that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness and die to sin. And it said, by His wounds you have been healed. That's what the mercy seat is. It, it is that. It, it, it's there between God, enthroned above the cherubim, and the law, which are at His feet. And it's atoning for the sinner. That's how Moses was able to come into the most holy place, and that's for you and me. The only way that we're able to be there and to be present together with the Lord, this is what we receive when we place ourselves into God's presence. We receive what? We receive forgiveness of sin. We receive the perfect righteousness of Christ, and therefore we receive final deliverance. Again, think about think about Naomi, uh, her returning to the land, her placing herself in the presence of the Lord. And what was the result of that? A redeemer. You know, that uh, verse I just read uh, moments ago out of First out of Peter, it ends with this, uh, the next verse. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were strained like sheep. That's what Naomi had done uh, and her husband. They had left the fold. They had left the flock. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now you have deliverance. Now you are able to truly be together with God. Now you have His provision. Now you have fellowship together with God. All of this simply by being placed into the presence of God, by turning to the means that He has given us, by uh, following and and being together with uh, the people of God. All of this, God's provision for us. You know, apart from that deliverance, there is no hope. Yet in this deliverance, there is wholeness of life and fullness of joy. You know, earlier we read this out of Psalm 16. Therefore, David said, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, as we come to the table today, that's what we're, we're, we're understanding that we are, are doing. We are in the presence of God. We've been given the, the gift of life and it's come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this table with thankfulness in our hearts and with new obedience in our minds, desiring to walk closer and closer in more uh, nearness to the Lord, making use of, of that which He has given us, that we might be able to continue on with Him forever. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the gifts that You do give us. Um, What a thought that we are able to be in fellowship with You day after day, moment by moment that especially when we gather together and worship, that we are able to experience You, to know You, uh, to be uh, progressively changed inside so that we are growing closer to You and more fully living out that which You have designed us to. Yet we also at the same time, we see that we tend to go to the left and to the right. We tend to fill ourselves with that which is not Your way and that which is not helpful. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to follow, we pray. And uh, give us the ability to recognize when we are in the land, when we are walking with You, and when we are walking apart from You. Help us to see that, Lord. And to make it our desire and our task to be together with you. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name.